of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so time is short. So if you're studying with us, we are in the book of 1 Timothy. Grab your Bibles now. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you in the seat in front of you. Grab it. Turn to the back, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 1 to 7. I want to be very clear when I say the world is getting darker, and that could be discouraging. That can be disheartening. I know it. But I also believe it's the perfect opportunity for the Christian to shine brighter, for the church of Jesus Christ to know who she is. And the church is made up of believers, all types of walks of life and backgrounds, and yet our common denominator is the truth that we've chosen Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and more than that, and by his grace alone, he has chosen us. And he has chosen you to be alive for such a time as this. Gone are the days, ladies and gentlemen, where you can hide behind your faith. See where the rubber of faith meets the road is where you discover where your loyalties and your allegiances lie. With the trials and the troubles of the day, of course, the truth is being squeezed out of us. So it's time to fully submit and surrender to what the Lord is doing in the midst of his church. He wants to use each of us. And that is why this series in the book of 1 Timothy has really helped us understand the importance of culture and character in the midst of a body. Culture meaning the personality of a people. Character meaning the standard that is set for the church's members and the church's leaders. Remember, leadership in the church is not about status. Any church or ministry that conducts themselves based on status and title, they're missing the heart of Jesus. Jesus' teachings were often paradoxical. They were seemingly upside down. If you want to be great, Jesus said, be the servant of all. Greatness, therefore, in God's economy is for those who are serving those around them. In other words, the person that is not thinking of self, the person that does not have a selfish agenda, the person that is looking to advance the cause of Christ and often at their own expense. Think of what the Apostle Paul said 
about associating his life with Christ's life. It's a famous verse, Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? It means that I no longer live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, the Christ who lives inside of me. And the life that I live in the flesh, that was not a sinful statement. He was saying the life that I'm living in my body as I'm living, I do so by faith in the one who loved me and the one who gave himself for me. Imagine if every Christian took that verse and applied it to their own lives. Oh, the standard of truth would be set as in chapter three, later on we'll discover the church or the description of the church is a pillar and a buttress or ground of truth. So these days and these times are going to get darker and God is looking for his church and his people, the Christians to shine brighter. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. He said, a time will come where instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it. Let's do it. God bless. No, there's a very real separation between the sheep and the goats in these days. You're seeing the conditioning of that separation. While some would actually try to say it's division, the church and the Christian sees it as separation. A theological word that would apply to separation is sanctification. God is setting you apart. Separation and sanctification is not isolation. Jesus said, while you're here, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. So we don't isolate from the world. However, with the equipment of the word of God, we are insulated from the lies of the world. So it's possible to be in the midst of it and yet not conform to it. It's possible to understand who you are According to Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, understanding the great sacrifice that Jesus made, these mercies of God that precede your life becoming a living sacrifice is made possible because Jesus's life was a dying sacrifice. Q verse two, do not conform to the world. Don't let the world fit you into its mold. No, let the Lord, like the great potter that he is, shape in you, fashion you into the image of his son. How do you do that? You commit your mind to be renewed in the word of God and by way of interpretation, when the mind is transformed, that mind is able to see the good and perfect will of God. How do you know the will of God? You're in his word. And when you're in his word, listen to me, because here's the punchline of the epistle. It's a defense of the gospel. And if you're in the word of God, your life will underline the gospel and if your life underlines the gospel, your life will expose those who undermine the gospel. That's the point. If a church is underlining the gospel in everything they do, that church will expose those in the same midst that are undermining the gospel, that are faking the fruit. You know, there's fake fruit, right? So chapter one, we learned that 
Paul says to Timothy, I'm going to ask you to stand on guard at the gates of the church. Why? Because what undermines the gospel? False doctrine. So pastor, teacher, preach the word, the full counsel of God's word. Make sure the sheep that are entrusted to your care understand the difference between truth and lies and how it applies. Chapter two, of course, what undermined the gospel? Men not leading well. Churches not praying for all men in all places, including those in government. What undermined the gospel? Not understanding God's creative order as it pertained to male-female relations, as it pertained to the specific gender roles that men and women play. And in chapter three, what would possibly undermine the gospel? Unqualified men in leadership. That's why these seven verses are so important. Beginning with verse one to three, which was part one, of a sermon titled Character Over Charisma, the scriptures read, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, episcopos, shepherd, pastor, overseer is probably the most accurate translation. If a man desires the office of overseer, he desires a good work, a hard work, but a noble work. A bishop then, must be blameless. Now, stop, because what's going to flow forth after this one statement are, they say, 16 descriptors of this man. I would say 15, because the first one is this idea of being blameless, above reproach. I would say out of being above reproach or blamelessness flows the following 15. And of the 15 that flow, One of them is an aptitude or a gifting, and it's the ability to teach or communicate or rightly handle the word of God. You want your leaders to have a working knowledge of the word of God so that when you go to them, they're not giving you their opinion. They're not giving you the cultural talking points. They are taking you to the book. So to the book, we look. Out of being blameless, he says, here's what's going to happen. This man is going to be the husband of one wife. He's only going to have eyes for one woman, and that's his wife. He's going to be temperate. This is the tripod of behavior. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. They're all really the same definition, just applied differently, like the beauty of a diamond and the nuances. Temperate, including being sober of mind. Sober-minded is a little bit deeper. It's vigilant. It's clear, it's sensible of good behavior means this man is orderly, he's disciplined, he's hospitable, it says. He loves strangers, he's able to teach. Verse three, not given to wine. That means not given to addiction, not given to other substances that would steal that sober-mindedness. Not violent, of course, that's self-explanatory. Doesn't quickly grab a weapon in the midst of a conflict. Not greedy for money, gentle, gracious, not quarrelsome or contentious and not covetous. This individual is satisfied by God's grace. Now, this is for the man in spiritual leadership at a church, but it's also the characteristics that should make up every Christian. So very quickly, I gave you three ways to look at blamelessness. The first, if you remember, 
Positional blamelessness. What does that mean? All Christians are blameless because Christ took the blame for us. Does that make sense? Christ is the scapegoat, which means you've escaped guilt. That's how I remember it. You are blameless, not because of anything you could do, but everything that Jesus did. That's positional blamelessness. Then there's conditional blamelessness. Condition by way of definition, you are in proximity to Jesus. Therefore, by proximity of that condition, you are to live by integrity, blamelessness. So it does matter. However, there's this constitutional blamelessness that's in the text. And the reason I chose constitutional, one, it rhymes with positional and conditional, but two, because it's a legal word. And that's what's being said here. The actual description of what it means to be above reproach is a legal term with imagery. And I love the imagery. It's not being able to seize anyone, especially this man, this pastor, this overseer, this elder, seize him and arrest him and put him on a stand and indict him. And then with the indictment comes the evidence to convict him. That's what that word means. It does not mean the man will not be accused. It means whatever is accusing the man doesn't stick. He is blameless. This is extremely important. That idea behind being blameless or above reproach It means no one can seize this man's life and arrest him. Does not mean the man is going to be perfect. No Christian is. To say that, according to John, is to admit you're a liar. It also does not mean the man is not going to make mistakes. However, it means when he does make mistakes, if there is a discrepancy, He's the first to own it. He is first to admit it. He opens up his life to the other overseers of the church, the other pastors and elders. He places himself under scrutiny. He trusts their advisement as the Spirit of God works in them, just as the Spirit of God works in him. And the Bible is very clear and explicit when it says, you know where wisdom comes from? a multitude of counselors. This occurred last September and it happened to a pastor who is pretty famous in Christendom. He's the pastor of the village church in Texas. And last September, he came to his church from his pulpit where he had served there for the decades prior and made an announcement And what I want you to see in this video, if you haven't seen it already, is what it means to be an overseer and an elder and a pastor in the midst of a church. Listen to the heart and the confession and the affirmation of how these types of discrepancies and allegations or concerns are handled by men who have integrity. Watch this. Several months ago, um, a woman approached me Um, outside here in the foyer. Um, She had some concerns for how I was DMing on Instagram with a friend of hers. Um, I I didn't think I had done anything wrong in that. My wife knew that. Her husband knew that. Um, and, And yet there were a couple of things that she said that were disorienting to me. Um, and so I immediately um, came into the room. I found Chairman of the Elder Boards, Jason Swords, found Josh Patterson, another lead pastor, 
and said, this is what this person just told me. Uh, and then I went home. Lauren wasn't with me that night. I told Lauren, this is what was said to me um, tonight. Um, from there, uh, the elders began to look into because that's what they're supposed to do. Uh, because we cannot be a church where anyone uh, is above the scriptures and above the high heavenly call uh, into Christ Jesus. And so they looked into um, the, the conversation between me and um, this other woman, uh, and they had some concerns. Um, and those concerns were not that our messaging was romantic or sexual. It, it was that our conversations were unguarded and unwise. And because I don't ever want there to be secrets between us, the concerns were really about frequency and familiarity. We believe in brother-sister relationships here. Um, and yet there was a frequency that moved past that. And there was a familiarity that played itself out in coarse and foolish joking. It's unbefitting uh, of someone in my position as a lead pastor and as an elder. I'm held to a higher standard and fell short of that higher standard. Um, so, so the elders have decided, and I think they're right, that my inability to see what I was in uh, probably has some, is revealing some unhealth in me. And I don't know if that's tied to the pace I run or uh, the difficulty of the last six, seven years, but I agree with them. Um, and so in their grace to me and my family, um, they've decided, and again, I think they're right, um, to put me on a leave of absence, um, uh, starting uh, immediately from preaching and teaching at um, the village church. And if I'm on, I'm just really embarrassed. Feel stupid. Thank you. Feel dumb. Feel like I'm embarrassing my wife and kids putting a ton of pressure on our staff. I feel like I've fallen short for you. And you might even be hearing, you might not even be a Christian. You might be hearing me saying this like, what the H? But the word of God holds me to a certain standard. And, and I, need to, I need to live into that. And, and I fell short. And man, I'm, I'm apologizing to my family, to you, to all involved in this situation. And um, I, some things I love. I love that our elders engaged at the level they did. You know how easy this would have been to make it nothing and just let me not address whatever this is? Super grateful that the elders have loved us and walked with us the way that they have. Um, super grateful for you. I'm super hopeful for what's to come in the future. But, but I need to breathe. Uh, and that's both discipline, it's both discipline and development. Um, and so man, in time, Forgive me. I love you. Eager for the other side of this, whatever God has for us. You see, that's an in real time example of the textbook response of what it would look like for a man in the position of overseer to own any discrepancy. And if you caught what he said, he was the first to go to his elder board and address it and then open up his life to exposure because that could have gone differently. With his status and influence in the community and beyond, he could have went the other way. And by going the other way, he could have convinced people that he was being bullied, 
that there was false accusations. But instead, I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, they put him on the sideline for development and discipline for three months. And he's back in his pulpit after three months. And he's stronger and clearer than ever before. And that church in Texas is more unified than ever before. And that is how we are to lead and govern our own lives. You see, Proverbs 28, 18, whoever walks blamelessly will be saved or secure, but he who is perverse in his ways will suddenly fall. He who is perverse or twists or manipulates his ways will eventually fall. You see, character that is above reproach, and here's the point, character that is above reproach for all of us does not defame the character of Christ. I mean, what's the aim? To not offend Christ to not cast shade on Christ. Now, there's an interesting correlation between men in my position who have scandals exposed in their lives, faults or flaws or failures, or being deemed and discovered a fake. There's an interesting correlation that if you look this up and you can Google the long list of men who have fallen from this post, many of them immediately attempt to defend their own character. And they try to say that their character is being defamed. And I find it to be the most hypocritical thing that can happen. In the process of actually defaming the character of Christ, they are attempting to protect their own name and character. And God will not be mocked. For what a man sows is exactly what a man grows. So as we pick up where we left off last week, we're going to see a transition. The transition is going to go from the characteristics of this man's personage to the character of this man's, see if you know me by now, parsonage. And I chose those two words because personage would include that man's actual character. And then parsonage, you know what that word is. It actually is related to what they used to call an ordained minister, a parson. And where he lived was the parsonage or an extension of the church. Did you know that? Right? And there's still this model where there's a parsonage alongside of certain churches and their pastors will live there. The idea, however, is applicable to every pastor and every elder that where they live, might not be connected physically to the church or on the church grounds. It's still a parsonage. It's still an extension of the church. There's no disassociation from private life and public life, not just for the pastor, but for the Christian. You see, the qualifications required to lead God's house are first measured by the quality of how we lead our house. Did you get that? How we lead our house. So the home is a litmus test for this leader. That man's marriage, that man's family. Verse four, one who rules his own house well. The, the idea behind ruling here is he's in the midst of it. He is the head of it. He is the conduit. He is the surge protector. He is ruling and managing his house well. What does that look like? If he has children, they're in submission with all reverence, having children in submission or in rank order. That's what that means. It's a military term. It means if that man's authority in the home is in the rightful biblical place that it should be, 
those under his care, those under his provision and protection are going to fall in line. Now, not perfectly, especially if an elder or pastor has young children, children are going to be children, right? But the idea of an authority in this home means when an order is given, that there's some semblance of response. There's not disorder or rebellion. Now, it might take a few commands to get certain children to be cooperative. I know this from being one of four boys in my home. My father's a career man. He was in law enforcement my entire youth. And of course, my older brothers, I learned very, it says in the Proverbs that a wise man not only learns from his own mistakes, a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. So I learned quickly that if you were out of line in my home and mom was by herself, she tried her best. She would go to that one kitchen drawer and she would reach for the spatula. Why the spatula? I don't know. And she would attempt to discipline my older brothers for being disrespectful or disobedient. And every time the spatula would break and my brothers would laugh and my mom would say, wait till your father gets home. And the laughing stopped. And in my little young mind, I would always say, wow, why does she always resort to the spatula? Because now she has to buy a new one and it never works. But when dad got home, when my father and his authority arrived, it was enough to put the kids in order. Is that making sense? So that's the environment of this man's home. Again, we're not talking about perfect children or a perfect spouse. We're talking about an order or a semblance of discipline in that man's life. Of course, an overused proverb that has so much meaning in it. Proverbs 22, six, training up your children in the way they should go so that when they're older, they will not depart from that standard set. You see, this man, this Christian man, regardless of being a pastor, he prioritizes his family. Now, prioritizing one's family is a sign of spiritual maturity. When we prioritize men, listen, I am in full-time ministry, so, so hear my heart. The ministry that God has entrusted to me, both in this place and beyond, is not my primary ministry. Now, you might be shocked to hear that. I'm learning as time goes on. My primary ministry is my wife and my children. And many of you in this room will attest, if you come up to me and say, pastor, how can I pray for you? You know exactly what I say every time. I don't ask for any prayers about my individual life. I ask for prayers that I would prioritize my wife and my children, because that's what I need you to do, is pray for me in that regard. See, the first several years of my marriage, I was a man on fire. After my release from prison, my wife and I got married in November of that year, 2014. Had the honor of joining the staff here at this church in March of 2015. I was speaking all over the country, allowing my testimony to precede me by God's grace alone. I was very busy. And in the midst of pursuing ministry and great opportunity, I'll be the first to tell you, I missed my primary ministry. And in the process, almost lost my marriage. Sarah felt so diminished. 
And so second place, in fact, not even second place, she felt as if I was giving her the sloppy seconds because she would watch her husband at that door and other ministry events, giving strangers my undivided attention, following up with emails and direct messages, making sure that you felt valued. And that's my heart, but not at the expense of my wife. And she actually, I appreciate you applauding that. It was the first three years of our marriage and she wanted out. And I don't blame her. Because the one that was supposed to be her best friend and pour into her, because if I'm doing what God has called me to do, she'll be more secure, more confident in what God has called her to do. If I miss that, There's insecurity in my home. My priorities are out of whack. So I'm asking Landmark Church for all of us to honor the idea behind prioritizing our families, both the men and the women, the mothers and the fathers, the husbands and the wives. Because especially for me in my position, if I lose my family, I lose my ministry. Interestingly, I I listen to a lot of different pastors, especially if I'm covering certain passages. And I listen to one of my mentors sermons last night on this text, Pastor Gary Hamrick. And what he said was so amazing to me. He talked about having his children who are now adults serving in his ministry. He said his only hope, him and his wife's hope was that his children would just love Jesus. It's not like he laid out their plan that they would follow him in the ministry, two of his sons are pastors in his ministry. And he goes, listen, I get that might make a lot of you uncomfortable that my own children and, and his daughter are on staff. He goes, I get that. And that is why we have people that look closely into that so that there's no conflict of interest. I love that. That's full transparency. He goes, but you know what? And I'm paraphrasing the fact that my kids are doing so well and they're serving the Lord. And he's like, and they're loving you the way I'm called to love you. He's like, that is the greatest joy of my life. He's like, but you know what? The same people that have a problem with me having my children on staff would be the same people who would complain if my children were running amok and rebellious and addicted to drugs. And they would demand me to step away from this position. He's like, you can't please these people. And I love that. Because a man like that isn't trying to please people. He is trying to serve his God. I covet your prayers based on everything I just shared. Quickly into verse six, we discover this man should not be a novice. And there's a reason why Paul tells Timothy, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Wow. What a statement for every Christian. We are never more like the devil than when we're full of ourselves. Can you just think with me for a second? Jesus Christ, fully God, deserving all glory, emptied himself. Man, far from God, deserves no glory often full of himself. Wow. See, the problem with, and I guess understanding the definition of what's being said here, Paul said he must not be a recent convert, a new believer. 
The phrase actually means one not recently planted, like a tree. There's no root system. It takes time for a root system to develop in faith, for those roots to go deep. Now, you can't put a certain timeline on it because it's also not chronological. It's not like, well, is it three years? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? It's spiritual. And often the, the spiritual maturity of a man or a woman precedes them. And it's affirmed by other believers who are further down the road than they are. But the ministry of an elder requires maturity. And maturity isn't always based on experience because certain experiences in life, certain resumes, look at my work history, look where I've been, look how gifted I am, look at my strengths. Certain experiences create arrogance, not confidence. So it's not just about experience. It's, it's funny, right? No, it's not. Because that's our idea of what our spiritual leaders should be based off of. Do they have experience? Did he go to seminary? Does he have any idea about business knowledge? Did he read that one book that helps him be a CEO? And I'm going, no. How about this? How about I'm uniquely qualified because I went to prison? Are we going to force that template on everyone else that God calls into the ministry? No. The point is God uniquely and personally qualifies each man and each woman for the role that he wants them to play in his work while they're on earth and they're to do so by being integrity filled and above reproach until the Lord calls them home. The idea of this warning isn't just for a new believer. While I agree with it, a new believer might feel themselves in a leadership position and will quickly be cut down. I wrote this down. The church must not lift up those whom the Lord will soon cut down. So the warning's not just for the novice, keep an eye on new believers that are babes in Christ. They're in their infancy stage. They need to be grown and they need to be fed and they need to be nurtured. And that's healthy Christianity. And older believers literally should look out for younger believers. That's the model of ministry. You know, this statement about swallowing one's pride. You ever heard that? Swallow your pride. I'm a deep thinker. I think of phrases like that and I go, man, I was a prideful young man. Pride goes before destruction. How did you end up in the situation you ended up in, pastor? Pride. Pride crept in and it was never snuffed out. Pride became my identity. And now in ministry, I have to work extra to humble myself so that pride does not creep in. So when some would say, hey man, swallow your pride, I say no. I'm not even going to swallow my pride. I'm going to spit it out. I want nothing to do with pride. And every Christian should want nothing to do with pride. You want to know why? God resists the proud. God stiff arms the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He gives his gracious hand and heart to the humble. Proud people cannot be corrected, cannot be criticized. Remember, they're not above reproach. They're above being approached. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Listen to this. <laughs> do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. See, the, write this down. The spiritually mature want nothing more than to make less of self and make God more. The spiritually mature want nothing more than to make less of self and make God more. Amen. So how do we become spiritually mature people? 
One for the elders and the overseers and the pastors. It's a job requirement, quite literally. But for every Christian, spirit maturity isn't something that comes in time. Right? Chronological age does not automatically come with wisdom or maturity. Again, it's another false idea that the older one is, the wiser they are. And I know a lot of older fools, the prison, since our team is going, prison is often filled with a bunch of old fools who are unwilling to take advisement or counsel from anyone. So what makes one spiritually mature? Think about this. Spiritual maturity doesn't develop over time. It develops over trials. This man, this woman, they need to be trustworthy. What makes one trustworthy? It's often the trials of life. It's often the troubles that you've been through that makes you worthy of trust. Why does God allow such tragedies and trials? It's because he's building up his children. And there's a muscle called faith that needs to be developed. James chapter one, verses two to four. Consider it joy when you fall into various trials. What? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking nothing. What makes a Christian mature? Trial. Yes, S and studying, but it's not intellect. Intellectual stimulation of studying and memorizing could be just knowledge, unless the knowledge is applied. And when knowledge is applied, it becomes wisdom. This is the difference between the Christian by knowledge and the Christian by nature of wisdom. That Christian takes God at his word. That's why James would write, hey, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word, all the same. Hear it and not do it. It's like the man that looks at himself in the mirror walks away, forgets what he looks like. He's a forgetful hearer. This individual takes God at his word and applies it. And through thick and through thin and through tragedy and through trial, we consider it joy, knowing that God is doing something eternal that he otherwise cannot do in the midst of comfortable circumstances. Moreover, verse seven. Verse seven ends where the passage begins. The idea behind being blameless or above reproach, watch this. He reiterates it by taking this man's conduct and character outside of the four walls of his church. Why? Because it's very easy to be loved and admired by the people that see you on stage every Sunday. And there is an illusion. The difference, however, as if the man in this position is the same with who he is off stage, with how he presents himself on stage. See, we say it's public persona and private personality. And I say, biblically, the public persona and the private personality should not have a gap in between the two. If there's a gap in between the two, that's what Jesus calls a hypocrite, a mask wearer, that I could be one way with y'all and a completely different way outside of the church, which is why verse seven ends with, hey, do you wanna not bring reproach to the church and yourself? 
Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. Outside of what? Outside of the church, outside of the faith, outside of Christianity, outside of Christ. These are non-believers. He is saying how you conduct yourself in the world as you're going to the post office, as you're making your way to the grocery store, as you're standing on the fence watching your children play a sporting event. That this testimony, translation, would be a beautiful witness among non-believers. Not talking about people not agreeing with what you believe. There's a huge difference. You will take condemnation and accusation and persecution just on the basis of being a Christian. That's not what he's talking about here. You can't win the court of public opinion. He's saying with those that have access to your life, you have a beautiful witness. He's saying those who profess godliness at church, but practice drunkenness, immorality, dishonesty throughout the week, opens the door of the devil to trap and accuse them. The devil is always seeking to destroy the believer's testimony. If he can destroy the believer's testimony, the devastation that follows for a pastor and his testimony to be destroyed, that brings shade to the name of Christ and the church. You do not have to look far. You may have that testimony that somewhere along the line, a pastor, a minister, a Christian did or said something contrary to the faith. And there, will, there are people who will never come back to church, especially because of a pastor or an overseer in my position that was one way here and lived a different way out there. They'll never come back to church. Now that's between them and the Lord, but I don't want to help them. I am not talking about a sermon on paper, if you can't tell, because I am not naive. There's plenty of people that have left this church because of the way I present a sermon on paper. But God forbid, literally, because he forbids it, that anyone would ever leave this church because of a sermon in person. There's a huge difference between the two. We're talking about not someone not returning because of a sermon on paper. We're talking about people who will never come back into the church or want nothing to do with the church because of a sermon in person. Translation, you may be the only Bible somebody reads. Haven't said that in a long time. I'm saying it now. I'm saying it now. That does not give us an excuse not to share the gospel verbally when I say that. It's just an encouragement and a reminder to you to live the gospel visually, right? So I'll end with a quote from D.L. Moody. I started with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'll end with a quote from D.L. Moody. Out of a hundred men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. So our conduct, our character, our conversation is of utmost importance in God's economy. He's not just called the overseers and the elders to have a standard of being blameless and living by integrity, being the same in public as we are in private, being first and foremost when we make mistakes and fail to bring it to the light. 
We are also called in the midst of this context to govern our homes, especially for the men and the fathers and the husbands. The greatest litmus test on whether or not we believe what we say we believe is likely found in our Christianity at home, right? Remember that quote? If I wanna know about a man's Christianity, I don't go to his pastor. I don't go to his best friends. I ask his wife. Because if a man's Christianity is not lived out in the home, I don't wanna hear that man talking about his Christianity anywhere else. This is the letter from Paul to Timothy. This is a charge of having character over charisma. This is the standard of being above reproach. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it by God's grace, church. Let's do it. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. The name of your perfect son, sinless, holy, majestic, perfect sacrifice, the one that gave his life for our life. So I pray in that name that we would understand the high call of what it means to wear that name. Lord, I pray these people, your church, would truly understand your faithfulness and your great grace by which you've called us. I pray you use this body as you have to make much of your name and your glory. Use us in this community and beyond. Stiffen the spines of these men. Continue to tenderize our hearts to serve you. Thank you for blessing us with so many capable women who love you. Bless our families in accordance with your will. Thank you that we could worship and witness such sweet innocence in our children. We are blessed. We don't deserve it. We give you glory through it. So it's in your name I pray, amen.